I'm so blessed to be with you today to study the Word of God. If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3. I know that some of you old-timers, you've been with me for a while, and you're thinking, oh, brother, not another sermon from this text. Well, let me assure you, this one's going to be a little bit different, but I just couldn't find a better text to give us a full understanding of Sola Scriptura than this. Again, we'll be looking at a little bit different angle today. If you're new with us, brace yourself about every 24 to 30 months. I have to preach on this passage. I have to circle back around here. This is the foundational idea of our ministry and the truth of what we do here at the church. We really believe in the power and sufficiency of the Word of God. We really believe that we want to flood all of our ministries with the Word, and I try to regularly zero back in on this passage, especially because uh, of where we are, the transient nature of our island and many people coming and going that we need to reestablish this. And this is what they did in the Old Testament, by the way. It wasn't they were, that they were avoided uh, certain passages and tried never to circle back around. In fact, there were a number of passages that you hear the Jewish people all throughout their history, Old Testament and, and beyond, coming back to text again and again. The Shema, Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment. You hear this repeated again and again. And this is one of those passages for us as New Covenant Christians that I believe is so vital to the life of the church. And we'll see why later on. What are we studying this early part of the year? We are studying our identity as a church, Makakilo Bible Church, who we are. In the first four weeks, as you know, we answer that question by saying we are Christian. And then beginning last week, I began what is effectively a, a five-part sermon articulating this idea that we are Protestant. We are Protestant. Now, it wasn't until the 20th century that theologians and others began to put this all together as they looked at the Reformation, looked at what happened during the Protestant Reformation, and put it together succinctly as the five solely. But if you study the Protestant Reformation, what, what happened, the Reformers agreed upon what was central to their arguments against the Roman Catholic Church, you'll inevitably agree with these five foundational truths, five basic truths, five solely of the Protestant Reformation. The first we studied last week, because it tied so neatly to the idea that we are Christian, is number one, sola fide. Sola fide. Sola fide, translated for the Latin, simply means faith alone. And what we learned last time is that though the Roman Catholic Church emphasizes faith and believes in terms of faith and salvation, they acknowledge that idea. Where we part ways with them is we say that faith alone is what justifies. Not faith plus works, not faith plus ritual, not faith plus church confirmation, none of that. When Abraham believed, it was counted as righteousness to him. He was justified. Long before the law was laid down, long before the rituals, the, the Old Testament rituals and ceremonies were laid down, Abraham believed and he was justified. And then, as a product of that faith, we saw his obedience, his works. Works came as a consequence of faith, not a consequence of justification, not as a cause of justification. Now, that idea, faith alone, sola fide, is what is known as the material cause of the Reformation. In other words, this was the stuff, the the, the material, the, the idea of, of debates and the discussion was all about this idea of sola fide, and we're going to look at another one next time, sola gratia, faith and grace alone. If you think of 
it like a building a table. A table is made up, most of the time, made up of wood. That's the material. That's the stuff. That's the substance. That's much of the debate of the Reformation was all around this idea of how a person is justified. He is justified by grace through faith. And this is what the Protestants answered. But where did they get that idea? What formed that idea in their heads? Why did they part ways with the Roman Catholic Church and, and begin to believe by, uh, that, faith is, uh, that salvation is by faith and grace alone? What is the form? Thinking again of the table, the form, a, a table is shaped with a, a flat surface and four legs. What creates that form? What has the authority to establish what that form is? Where do they get that idea from? What does that form come from? Or you could ask, what is the formal cause of the Reformation? Now, the formal cause of the Reformation is the doctrine we're going to be studying today, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. That's what we're looking at today, Roman numeral number two, a part of this extended sermon. Scripture alone. Well, let me read this passage for us. And then we'll get into the meaning of sola scriptura, not just for the Reformation, but for us as people, Makakilo Bible Church, living many years after that, but also just individually as Christians. What does this doctrine, what does this truth mean for you and me? All right, let me read this very familiar text, 2 Timothy 3, and I'll begin at verse 14, and I'll go down to, into chapter 4, several verses into chapter 4. Follow along as I read aloud. 2 Timothy 3, 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the Word of God. Martin Luther was a law student originally. His father, Hans, wasn't necessarily poor, although he may have started out poor like many people do, but he probably later owned a uh, copper smithing company, so to speak. But he wanted his son to have an advanced education so that he could reach, uh, reach a level of prestige that he never could without uh, an education. And so he made sure, he worked really hard, he made sure that his son would go to the university, get his master's and doctorate degrees, and become an influential lawyer or politician. And this is precisely what Luther did. He got his education, he began his master's degree, and 
Late in his master's degree and really in the early months of his doctoral studies, this this sort of year time or perhaps two years of his life as he transitioned from his master's degree into his doctorate, he had four major life-altering events, four hardships. You could say a series of unfortunate events. These things would eventually lead Luther to the monastery to become a priest. Now, you've probably heard of the most famous one, but I think there's other hardships, and it sort of describes this part, this era of Luther's life that will help us understand better how he came to his, the, the doctrine of sola scriptura. The first thing that happened, and I believe I'm giving these to you in chronological order, the first thing that happened is that he was with a friend, and they were either playing, sort of jousting with one another with some swords, or, or perhaps they were practicing. I don't know what they were doing, but they were, they were using swords, and he got cut. I think he even cut himself. He cut his femoral artery in his leg, and he began to bleed out in a field sort of away from town. His friend rushed into town, found a surgeon who saved his life, and Luther really, he looked death in the eye. He was about to die had it not been for that surgeon. The second thing to happen is that a very close friend was murdered. Again, Luther looked death in the eye. His, his friend was uh, uh, a victim of a robbery gone bad, and his friend was stabbed, and his friend died. The third thing to happen was his favorite professor. The, this is still in the days that the bubonic plague was, was sort of popping up and spreading, and, and things were happening, though it was dying down. It was sort of on continental Europe. It was dying down, but it was still spreading and could hit a town, and sure enough, it hit the town in which he lived, And his favorite professor, along with many other people, died in town. It was very troubling for Luther to see this. And then the fourth thing that happened, and this is the one that you may be most familiar with, the fourth thing that happened, and it happened during a a short break after his first semester of his doctoral studies. Luther had taken that break to, to travel by horseback to see his parents, and on his way back, there was a an an amazing thunderstorm. Lightning either struck him or his horse or near them and threw him off the horse down into a ditch. Luther began to pray to St. Anne. St. Anne was the patron saint of copper miners, if you didn't know that. St. Anne is supposedly Mary's mother. So he began to pray to St. Anne, and he committed to St. Anne that he would become a monk. That's precisely what Luther did. Days later, he announced this to his friends and to his family, that he had decided to become a monk, to leave the prestige of being a lawyer and to become a monk. And it would have been just as as dramatic as as we would see it today if someone was pursuing a law degree who was smart and and capable and had qualified for doctoral studies and and was on his way to becoming a great politician, a great lawyer, to, to suddenly decide to leave everything and become a monk. That's precisely what he did. And back then, particularly in the Dominican Dominican monkhood, he would just be away from everybody. He would be gone. In fact, what they did is they held a goodbye party for him, believing they'd never see him again. So on July 16th, 1505, they have this farewell party. And Luther actually read a statement of farewell to his friends and family. And on July 17th, he went and presented himself as a novice in the monastery there in Erfurt. His father, very disappointed, stopped calling him sir or a man. And he said, I now revert back to calling you a boy. Your folly is so obvious. Well, I believe it was during that very deadly and difficult era 
many years before Luther was even saved, but it was during that time that Luther became convinced of the doctrine that we now call sola scriptura. I don't think he was formally convinced at that time. I don't think he was academically or intellectually convinced at that time, but I believe God began to do a work on his heart that convinced him of sola scriptura. What happened? Well, somewhere in that time, in that era of great hardship, Luther noticed in the library a little red book on a platform. It was in the school library. It's possible, perhaps even likely, that that little book was chained to that platform, meaning you could not take it out of there. You could only read it there, standing uh, before that stand in the library. Of course, that little red book was the Bible. It's kind of hard for us to understand today how people felt about the Bible back then. Most of us, you know, we go home, we have multiple Bibles, we even have multiple translations of the Bible. But back then, the the Bible had not been translated into the language of the people. It was still in Latin. They used Jerome's translation. And even as people throughout the centuries had, had tried to get in the language of the people, they actually were persecuted quite seriously by the Catholic Church, even put to death. I think later Tyndale and before Luther, Huss and Wycliffe. The Bible, the church taught, was a dangerous, confusing book. And you can't just let people read it and come up with what they think it means. This is a thing that needs to be protected, a thing that needs to be kept from the people. One of the popes in that era, Pope Pius IV, said that for a common person to have a Bible it would be a detriment to his piety. And thus only a, a clergyman, only a priest, someone from the church, a representative could, could give them permission to read the Bible or, or perhaps even take a Bible home with them. And because of that idea, very often you could find, if you could find a library with a Bible, you would find that Bible being chained to a pulpit somewhere in the libraries, untouched, collecting dust, something seeming, seemingly obtuse and strange in a different language with lots of mystical things inside of it that no common person could ever understand. But Luther found this Bible, and now knowing Latin and Greek and Hebrew, he would understand what the Bible says. Luther began to read this Bible, and this Bible began to captivate him. All these stories, he'd only heard bits and pieces, just here a statement, there a statement in Mass or whatever. He did not know that there was this, this meta-narrative that, that leads people to the gospel, this, this story of these people and who eventually would reject Christ, but then the Christ would come. And he hadn't read any of this, and it was amazing. It captivated him. Someone said the story of Luther's discovery of the little red book it's not so much about Luther getting hold of the Bible, but of the Bible getting a hold of Luther. One of Luther's biographers said he read all this history, all this revelation, and it, it awoke in him feelings that he had never known before. He returned home with a full heart after reading the Bible, and he thought to himself, oh, that God would give me such a book for myself. He read it, and he read it, and he read it again. And then, in his astonishment and joy, he returned to read it once more. The first glimmerings of a new truth were then beginning to dawn upon his mind. 
And this author goes on to say, in that Bible, the Reformation lay hid. Someone knowing of Luther's love for the Bible, right before he went to the monastery, was able to find a Bible, and they gave Luther that Bible. When he arrived at the monastery, they took it away from him. You can't have one of those dangerous things, they said, but it was too late. God had done a mighty work on Luther's heart. It would be years before the light of the gospel and the truths would come to his heart. God had begun to break through and give him a passion for the Word of God. God had planted in his heart a love for the authority and the power of his Word. And this passion for God's Word would lead him and all the Protestant reformers to the doctrine of sola scriptura. Now, what is this truth? What do they mean by Scripture alone, sola scriptura? Sola scriptura is the belief that the Bible is the only clear and infallible revelation of God that is the final authority in the church, and that it, thus, is the center of Christian and church life. Well, let me break that down for you. This makes up our points this morning. Number one, Scripture alone is the clear, infallible revelation of God. Scripture alone is the clear, infallible revelation of God. Look there at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able, that word able, dunamis, which are powerful to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, there are other sources of divine revelation, believe it or not. The Bible actually speaks of these other sources of divine revelation. There is general revelation, for instance. This is creation and conscience. Essentially, if you want to sum up what is general revelation, it is creation and conscience. God has given this to every sentient, thinking human being. They have creation to look at, and they have an inner moral compass that tells them right and wrong. Romans 1 verse 20, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we're out without excuse just because of general divine revelation. God reveals to every person through nature and even down deep in their hearts the truth of Himself. But that revelation is not clear. You can't be saved by general revelation. You have to believe the gospel. You have to know of Christ. You have to know of the atonement. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. You have to have faith in what Christ accomplished on the cross. Believe in His resurrection. So though that divine revelation is real, and the Bible speaks of general revelation, it is not saving revelation. It is not clear revelation. People are still responsible to respond to that revelation, though they don't without the help of God. But divine revelation, as it may be, general revelation lacks clarity. It lacks what we talked about some weeks ago, perspicuity. There is also revelation, godly revelation from other people. Depending on how you emphasize Proverbs 21 verse 30, it seems to say if there's any wisdom, if there's any good thing, good advice, it comes ultimately from God. If there is something wise, if there is something good, if there is something moral, if there's good advice, good counsel, anything that's good ultimately comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, James 1. 
But the problem with that kind of revelation is that it is fallible. It may be good. There may be elements of divine truth and good advice that's there, but it's fallible. It has mistakes. It's mixed. There are some falsehoods in there. Advice from human people, humans, is always fallible. It has mistakes. It has misunderstandings. It has shortcomings and faults. Even it's very clear, even it's very specific. Can I share with you a little secret? This includes preaching. I know you thought, after being here for a while, you thought preaching, preachers, if he does it right, it's perfect. But I make mistakes. I'm fallible. And so even what I give up here can be filled with mistakes. It includes worship songs. It includes poetry. Even if it includes large portions of Scripture, if it's not Scripture alone, it is erroneous. It has errors in it. This is one reason why, among many, why we try to, try to stay as close as we can to the Bible in all that we do, whether it's preaching or other kinds of ministry, even advice-giving, counsel, disciple-making, we try to stick with the Word of God. Well, this thinking that Scripture alone is the only infallible and clear revelation of God is a major deviation. It's a major conflict with Roman Catholic dogma. The Roman Catholic Church believed in Luther days and Luther's day and even in our day as well that it is not Scripture alone that is perfectly clear and infallible, but Scripture plus revelations that come from the church, meaning the popes, the councils, and tradition. It's Scripture plus the church, Scripture plus the popes, Scripture plus the decisions of the councils, Scripture plus the traditions. These are equally authoritative, equally infallible, and equally clear, and thus equally authoritative as Scripture is. What this means, first of all, according to the Catholic Church, is what we've already seen, is that Christians cannot truly understand Scripture without the church coming along and telling them what it means. What it also means is that popes and councils and tradition can speak with the same level of absolute perfection, clarity, and authority as Scripture. Why is there monasticism in the Roman Catholic Church? Can't find it on the page of the Bible. Don't hear anything about it. Why, why do they do and support monasticism? Because the church has said, this is what we ought to do. That's taken as Scripture. Why is celibacy, especially among those who are of the cloth, the, the priests and the prelates of the church, why is there, they insist on celibacy? It's not in Scripture. Peter himself, the, the supposedly the, the founder, the first pope, had a wife. Why does the Catholic Church believe in celibacy? It's not in Scripture because the church has said that's the way it ought to be, and thus it is. Why is there purgatory? You can't find this in the Bible anywhere. Why does this, where, where can you find this whole convoluted doctrine of purgatory and indulgences and the treasury of merit and, and how to get some of that treasury to shorten your time in purgatory? Why should this all be embraced? Because the church has told us to embrace that. The Roman Catholic Church, the popes, the councils, the traditions have spoken ex cathedra from the seat of authority. And that authority in their minds is equal to Scripture and they can make decrees equal to Scripture. 
Well, the Protestants, as they began, this Reformation began to take place, the Protestants rejected this thinking. Scripture alone is the clear, infallible revelation of God. Luther said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Well, that just made them so mad. How could you say this? All their authority and power totally undermined. There is a, there is a Luther was saying there's an authority that's higher than popes and church and council. Early as the Reformation got started, right after I think uh, Luther was probably saved, he wrote a book called To the Christian Nobility, and one of the arguments for Sola Scriptura that Luther makes is to show how unreliable, how unclear, and how fallible popes and councils have been. And one of the examples that he used was from about 200 years before. About 200 years before Luther was writing this book, he said, I want you to go back and and think of what councils and popes were doing back then, because if you look back into that time, into the 1300s, what you find out is that various councils appointed different popes. In fact, there were four different councils that appointed four different popes at a time. In fact, if you looked at the whole era, there were seven, and within 100 years, there were seven different popes, each one of them excommunicating the other, all conflicting, all confused. And Luther said, listen, obviously someone's in the wrong here. Obviously, these councils are not speaking clearly and not speaking infallibly. They have all kinds of mistakes. How can you say that they can speak as authoritatively as the Word of God? No. Popes and councils and the church and tradition is under Scripture, not equal or over it. In fact, I mentioned this a moment ago. Pope Pius IV said, said later in the Reformation how dangerous it would be if an individual could read the Bible, interpret it for themselves. No person should have the Bible. They had to have express written permission from the church to read and study the Bible. And he spoke this ex cathedra. He said, this is for all of time. This is the truth. No Christian should have the Bible. It's too dangerous. They need the church to interpret it for them. No one should take a Bible home with them and study it. It's dangerous. Yet, 400 years later, another council popped up, the Second Vatican, and they said, we ought to make the Scriptures available to all people. So here are two groups of people saying the opposite thing as one another. Clearly, they are fallible and cannot be trusted. All right, I think I've beat that horse enough. Let's move on. Sola, sola Scripture, first of all, means Scripture alone is the clear, infallible Word of God. Second, number two, Scripture alone is the final authority in the church. Scripture alone is the final authority in the church. Now, I want you to follow Paul's argument here. What is Paul teaching Timothy and the young pastor, uh, Timothy, who is the young pastor at Ephesus? In chapters 2 and 3, we find out there's all kinds of of challenges in the church. At the end of chapter 3, what we just read moments ago, Paul tells Timothy, essentially, young man, don't worry. You know the power of the Word of God. You know the Word. Scripture is God-breathed. It is, it is from God. It is powerful to revive a dead heart. It makes people wise to salvation. It is powerful and fully capable and sufficient to equip you, young Timothy, and all of your people for every good work. And look at verse 16, it is profitable, and the word means it's of supreme benefit. If God through His Word saves you, and if God through His Word sanctifies you, Timothy, He will use the Word to accomplish the same thing in your congregation. So it's profitable for teaching. 
It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in not just some, but all righteousness. It's sufficient to give you everything you need for all righteousness, to equip you for every good work. You don't have to look to church authorities, the decrees, the things that you can't find in Scripture to, to sanctify you, to grow you. Just look to the Word of God, and that's it. Therefore, chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, verse 2, preach the Word. Take that powerful, sufficient Word and give it to your people. That's enough. That's all you need to do. You know, Paul had already guided Timothy in this way before. This was not a new thing for Timothy to hear, though it was a greater emphasis, I believe, on what he had said to Timothy probably verbally many times and at least another time in 1 Timothy. In fact, if you want to flip back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4 verse 11, just a couple pages to your left. Paul says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Listen carefully. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. In other words, Timothy, focus on your personal holiness, your character, and focus on preaching. The reading of the Word, the explanation of the Word, and the exhortation from the Word, the application of the Word. You immerse yourself in this. You be absorbed with this. The job of a pastor, in other words, he's saying this, the job of you, Timothy, as a pastor is to focus on your life as a holy man, as a man that, that seeks holiness, and as a man who is absorbed with the preaching of the Word. Think about what pastors have done and all the different duties and jobs that they've taken on. Think about Luther's day. Think about priests even of our own day. How many jobs and tasks and tasks and all these other things that people think are so important for them to do. And here is Paul narrowing down for Timothy. What I want you to be consumed with is the preaching of the Word. A few years after God began that work in Luther's heart, through His Word, God saved Luther. I read you that quote last week, his tower experience. That is the possible time when Luther was finally saved or came to the knowledge of, of faith and understood it. That's probably 1519, 1520. And by that time, even though he was just then getting saved, so to speak, by that time he was already in, in deep yogurt with the Roman Catholic Church. They were irritated with him. He was a problem that needed to be dealt with, and the, the Pope kept on sending different people to go and deal with Luther. And by that time, Luther was combing through Scripture and comparing it to the, the practices of the Roman Catholic Church and, and making some obvious observations that their practice is not biblical, and it's not just something that's not biblical. It's not just something outside of Scripture. It's something a lot of it that contradicts Scripture. And Luther, as I said, began to write all these things down in pamphlets and booklets and books to make these things clear. Thanks to the recently invented printing press, his 
books began to be reprinted in the language of the people, and they began to spread all over Europe. People began to read what Luther was saying and the observations that Luther was making comparing the church to Scripture. Again, the church tried to ensnare him a few times. They sent people to debate Luther and talk with Luther. They tried to quiet him down and placate him and get him to stop doing all this. But Luther would not be silenced. He continued to write. He continued to preach these Reformation truths. And people began to be revived. People were awakened to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of Scripture. This massive revival began to happen all across Europe, and, and people were thrilled, just like Luther was way back years before as he opened that little red book. They were thrilled to read these things and to understand for the first time clearly what the Bible said, what the Bible says about salvation, namely that salvation is, is not by works but by faith. And this did nothing but make the Roman Catholic Church more and more angry. So finally, they demanded that Luther come to a diet. Now, it has nothing to do with food. This is sort of a, 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 a trial. They called it a diet back then. It would be a trial with some political dignitaries, and it would be in a town called Worms. The emperor would be there. The pope, I think, tried to make it. Maybe it was late or something. I forget exactly how the story is. But there at the Diet of Worms, they demanded that Luther recant of all of these booklets and all of these things that he'd said, to, to take back everything that he said and all of these books, and they, they set them before him. By that time, 1521, he'd already published at least 25 works. And they set them before Luther and the emperor sitting there, and they demanded that he recant. Now, believe it or not, Luther didn't stand up and give his bold response at that point. In fact, Luther said, can I go home and think about this? He said, you know, I, 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 I respect you people. I respect the Pope. I respect these people who are, are in power, and I don't want to offend them, so give me a night. And he went home and prayed and thought and read Scripture. And the next day, they brought him in to be on trial before the emperor and this is when Luther said the following, "'Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred in, and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures, the Scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything.'" since it is neither safe nor right to go against one's conscience. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. There were immediately shouts of rage and anger. There were also cheers. Again, the, the revival was spreading. Luther had a, a lot of people who, who loved these truths and were so glad to hear him give this bold defense. Luther was hustled out of the room right after that and back to his, the house he was staying there at Worms. And Charles V, the emperor, made the edict of Worms, declaring that Luther was a heretic and should be brought to trial. With the church, Charles V told Luther, we will grant you safe conduct back home until this trial so you can wait for the trial to, to happen. However, the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church had a long, illustrious history 
of telling people that, but then killing them before trial, the trial even happened. And so Luther actually escaped at night and began his journey back home. Well, did you hear what Luther said in his statement? The church, the councils, the popes, the traditions, all of these are not equal to the Scriptures. They are under the authority of the Word of God. All of these are errant and fallible and therefore not to be trusted unless they conformed to the Word. His conscience was convinced of the truth of sola scriptura. And what that meant is the final authority of the church and the life of all Christians was the Word of God. Now, let me say something. Luther and others, including us today, agree that sola scriptura means that the Word alone is the final authority, not that the Word is the only authority. Are you with me? There are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, I think this is probably most popular in America because we're real big on individualism. There's this idea that I will have no authority. I follow no teachers. I read no books. I don't really support any particular church or any pastor. I'm not a part of any of this stuff. I don't follow any of it. It's just me and my Bible. That's it. I don't need no books. I don't need no professors. I don't need no pastor. I can do fine without anyone else, just me and my Bible. Well, not only does that sound like you're just lazy and prideful, you refuse to learn from anyone, it also contradicts exactly what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible says we need authority in our lives and accountability in our lives, that there are authority structures, though they are fallible, though they are under the Word of God, there is still a support of authority structures in the Bible, particularly in the church. You see it also in the family. So we look to Luther, we look to others, we look to passages in the Bible like Hebrews 13.7 and Hebrews 13.17. We have leaders both today and leaders who've gone before us. We are supposed to look to their lives, we're supposed to look to their doctrine and follow them. Paul, a fallible man, says, mimic me, follow me. Not because you believe I'm infallible or perfect or above or even equal to Scripture, but because I will guide you to Scripture. Someone said, don't forget, it's sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. I'm going solo here. The Scripture alone is a final authority, not the Scripture alone is authority. For all of us, the Bible tells us to answer to human accountability, the church, the authority that's baked into the church, the, the elders and the leaders of the church. But we do this knowing that no human institution, no creed, no group of people is our final authority. That is reserved for God and God alone through His Word. Now, if the Word of God is the only infallible and clear revelation of God, and it is therefore alone the final authority in our lives or in the church, what place should it hold in our day-to-day -day lives? What place should it hold in the church? Number three, Scripture alone is the center of Christian and church life. Sola Scriptura means that Scripture alone is the center of Christian and church life. I quoted this a few weeks ago, 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church is the, the household of God, should be the pillar and buttress of truth. 
Here, in our passage, specifically chapter 4, Paul sets the Word of God as the center of Christian worship. You ever wonder why we dedicate so much time to the preaching of the Word? Why not? Why, not, why don't we spend more time in fellowship? Why don't we spend more time in music? Why don't we spend more time in, in Christian ministry and service and serving the community and doing all kinds of other stuff that Christians should do? Why do we take so much time to insist that people sit down and listen to a guy yell at you for 45 minutes? Is that just something that a bunch of preachers sat down and said, you know what, I, I like yelling at my people. You like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. Let's make that what church is all about. No, this comes from the Word of God. Look there at chapter 4 again with me. I charge you in the presence of God. He just established that the Word of God is the sufficient and powerful authority of God to save and sanctify people. Therefore, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing in kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people not will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, Paul is saying, this is a hard task. To believe and to preach and to, and to operate in this idea of sola scriptura, that Scripture alone should be the center of church life, the center of your preaching, is, is a hard task. People seek other things. People like to hear self-help. People like to come and be affirmed. People like to come and learn life hacks, special tips. They, they love these things, but the plain preaching of the Word of God, people will resist. They will turn away. They will leave your church. They will go and search for other quote-unquote preachers. But Timothy, even when it's out of season, even when it's not popular, I solemnly charge you, preach the Word. The Christian life, the life of the church, a congregation, is lived in fellowship around the table with God's bread, the Word of God, to be consumed. Don't give in, young Timothy. Preach the Word. On his way home from the Diet of Worms, Luther was kidnapped, literally kidnapped, but he was kidnapped by some friends. He didn't expect them. He thought he would go back to Wittenberg and continue to preach. These friends hurried him to a castle near Eisenach called the Wartburg Castle. They convinced him that if he continued to travel and preach and even go back to his home, that he would be killed. Now, like many were being killed at that time, and like I mentioned earlier, there was a pretty clear history of how these things went. In fact, the Pope called Luther, at one point, the Pope called Luther a Hussite, pairing him with this guy about 100 years earlier named Jan Hus, a, a guy from what we call now the Czech Republic, a guy from Prague. And he said the same thing, the Pope back then said the same thing to Hus. He said, you're going into trial for trying to get the, language, the, the Bible and the language of the people and preaching in such a way. He said, we're going to go to trial, but we'll give you safe passage. We promise you safe passages. And, and Jan Hus took the Pope at his word, and he began to travel back. Well, he didn't know that the Pope had hired some people to nab him and then have him executed before he even went to trial. Now, Luther, particularly Luther's friend, friends knew this. They didn't trust the Pope, they didn't trust the emperor, and so they kidnapped Luther, and they took him to this castle to, to live in secret for a while. They hid him in this castle, they gave him an alias... 
Junker Jorg or George the Knight. And they told him, you need to grow your hair out. Of course, he had the, the monk's tonsure, right? Bald on the top and the sides had hair. And he grew his hair out. He grew a great beard and he got fat like a good knight. Luther initially was not very happy about this. How would he preach? How would the word get out? How would his, his flock there at Wittenberg grow? If he was sequestered off in some castle with a different name, how, how would the Reformation continue to, to go? But he didn't have a choice. So what did you think Luther did in that time up in that castle? He translated the Bible to the German language. He took the Bible, beginning with the New Testament, he began to translate it into the common language of the people. In fact, Luther is credited, even by secular people who hate all things God, he is credited as the one who normalized the German language. There are all sorts of conflicting dialects and stuff all across Germany, and Luther, by doing this, basically normalized the German language. He, he was to be credited even for today's uh, German language. He could read the Latin, he could read the Greek, he could read the Hebrew, and he took these things, set them before him, and he spent hours and hours every single day translating the Bible. In fact, this became probably the hardest time of his ministry. All kinds of temptations and bizarre things began to happen to him. He became, became afraid of things happening and that, that, that Satan did not want this thing to happen. And I think in a very real way, he became physically ill and, and struggled. But he battled through this because he knew the power and authority of the Word of God. So he took that time battling all that temptation, and he translated the Word of God so the people could have it in their hands because Scripture alone should be at the center of their lives. Not many years after the Reformation, as things sort of settled down, many Protestant churches took the pulpit, which used to be off to the side, and they moved it to the center of the church as a symbol, not because the pastor is the center of church life, but because the Word of God should be at the center of church life. In fact, that's when they changed the robes, the, the, the priests, the, the preachers, they used to wear these ornate robes and to identify themselves or to distinguish themselves, but when they stood in the pulpit, oftentimes they would wear a, a very monotone, bland robe, either all black or all white, just almost to erase himself from the equation, to, to have the people deal directly with the Word of God right there at the center of their church. Now, let's wrap this up. Listen closely. If God's authority is in your life, it happens through the Word of God. If Scripture alone is the infallible and clear revelation of God, that's the thing that you center your whole life around. That's the thing that you live on. So the question, the very obvious application for all of us is, does God have authority in your life? And don't answer that just yet, because the question should just as well be, does God's Word have authority in your life? Is it the center of who you are? Do you study it every day? Do you listen to it? Do you take notes about it? Do you submit to it? Or is it just some dusty piece of furniture that lays for an entire week until it's time to go to church, dust it off, and show up? 
Is the Word of God, I think, as a church, as, as elders, we have to think, is, is the Word of God the center of our church life around here? Does uh, everything we do, does it center on the Word of God? You can tell me you're, tell you're blue in the face that you believe in sola scriptura, but unless the Word of God has full authority, full and final authority in your life, you don't believe it. So my prayer for us today is that we would see this wonderful story of our heritage, the wonderful doctrine of sola scriptura that we see in the Bible, and make this application become passionate about God in our lives through His Word. But let's pray that we would do that. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You've given us this very clear, infallible way of speaking to us, of exerting Your authority over us. And Lord, we understand, even reading the Bible, that there are other authorities, there are people who have authority in our lives, whether as a child or even, as, even if we're a, a self-employed person who comes to church, Lord, we have authorities over us. Even as elders, we respond to the authority of the church, we respond to the authority of one another. Lord, we all listen to Your authority. But ultimately, Lord, we test all authority, we test all truth by the measure of the Word of God, because it is Your Word that is the final authority in our lives. Lord, make that real in our lives. Make it be true of us. I pray that, Lord, You would, you would move us, use these uh, Scriptures, these passages, and also the stories of those gone by to encourage us to make the Word of God the center of our lives. Help us not just believe sola scriptura, but live sola scriptura. Lord, I pray this will be true for all of us who are believers. I pray that it would become true of those who do not know you. Call them to salvation this moment. Call them to have faith in Christ alone, for your word has declared that he alone is the mediator between you and us. Call them to faith and repentance. Lord, we need your work to do this. We need your spirit to change our hearts. And so we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.